Grab your pitchfork, light your torch, and get ready for inciting a riot. Conventional thinking has been warned. Because we're going to gather, and we're going to march, and we're going to blow its f***ing house down. Hello, rioters, and welcome back to Inciting a Riot, the podcast I would be your left-wing, dirt-worshipping host, Firelight. Today, I am so excited. This is an episode a very long time in the making, episode 134, Inciting a Wallstonecraft Riot. Um, today, I have uh, a really exciting interview with children's author and pagan, uh, Jordan Stratford. Jordan writes the Wallstonecraft Detective Agency series, which if you have a girl ages 9 to 12, um, you've probably heard about, and if you don't, you haven't. <laughs> but don't worry, if you haven't read his books, you will not be lost. This is not just an interview about his series, but more so an interview about the nature of uh, children's literature in general, being a children's author, sort of the responsibility that comes with that. We discuss the ideas of teaching children feminism and uh, the ideas of authentic representation in children's literature so that you don't have to squint to see yourself at an early age. Uh, we discuss that weird, turfy, awful tweet from J.K. Rowling. But we also discuss what it's like to find success later in life, in an age and an era where uh, we are bombarded by the social media influencer. You know, folks that are really young, finding success at a very early age. Uh, you know, society is telling us that you sort of kind of have to have your whole life figured out by 20 with 3 million Instagram followers and a very clear path towards a long and successful career with millions of dollars in the bank. Um, whereas uh, Jordan just started publishing books a few years ago. So um, it's a really engaging discussion uh, for a lot of different facets of interest. So I'm very excited to present to you this uh, interview with Jordan Stratford. But before we get there, I just want to thank everybody that is currently a supporter of this show and of Inciting a Brouhaha on Patreon. Um, you guys have been really wonderful. You have helped to upgrade uh, the software that we use to record the shows, upgrade the microphones, uh, do a lot of stuff for the show um, that I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise uh, or would have had to, you know, scrounge up the money to try to pay for it out of pocket, um, which I don't know about you, but I'm not an influencer with millions of followers and lots and lots and lots of money in the bank. So um, having you guys support this, support independent pagan media is a uh, wonderful gift. If you would like to give as little as a dollar per episode, you can go to patreon.com slash inciting projects. That's patreon.com slash inciting projects. A dollar gets you um, the full audio. Five bucks or more gets you full video content, uh, plus other little goodies and things um, sprinkled throughout. So thank you guys in advance. Without further ado, here is the interview with Jordan Stratford. Well, Jordan Stratford, thank you so much for uh, being here today on Inciting a Riot, the podcast. I'm so excited to uh, to connect with you. There was this fun, uh, weird period this morning where uh, I woke up and had no idea what time things were <laughs> because Canada is a foreign land <laughs> that's, you know, mere hours away from my house. So thanks for being here and thanks for taking the time. I'm delighted to do this. And, um, uh, you know, there's a sort of interesting thing that North America, it, it goes up and down, right? So, um, you know, here on the West Coast, we really kind of consider 
Vancouver, Seattle, and Portland to really kind of be one mm -hmm. country. You know, we really are kind of one nation because you know, if it's raining there, it's raining here. Um, and so it really is defined by by rain and blackberries and kind of Pacific Northwest Gothic. That uh, <laughs> so um, uh, you know when we think about Canada, I think about kind of Canada where you are, like you know Toronto and and Montreal. So you know like the, it's and it's way the hell over there. Uh -huh. I mean, it's kilometers from me. Um, so we're just we're just like West Coast is is, is like the, is the location. Yeah, I, I woke up and and I, even though I had had the time scheduled on my calendar, uh, I woke up and thought, oh crap, I've got an interview in an hour. But, whew, boy, better hurry up and get these horses taken care of. I've got it's Toronto time. No, no, it's, Canada's very big. Uh, so Jordan, um, you are an author, uh, most specifically known for children's books. Is that right? Tell us a little bit about um, the work that you've done and put out there in the world that you're most known for. You know, I've been using words to put a roof over my head since I was about 17. So I started, um, I, I wrote, uh, actually I started in, in poetry. And that was really the foundation. And I'm, I'm, I studied poetry quite formally. And that really became the foundation of how I used language. And, and if, uh, if you can if, create a response from a reader with 40 words, and those words are perfect. And you, you, then you can write anything. You can write a dishwasher repair manual. You can write ad copy. And so, you know, I did that for a really long time. And I wrote film. Um, I taught film school. Um, and I was a writer for hire for the film industry for a number of years. And so I, I made the jump to long form fiction in 2012 just to see, uh, just to kind of get over my bad self. And, uh, because I always had a very mercenary approach to writing, if I was going to write something, it meant that the meter was running and I was going to get paid. Um, the idea of writing a novel, which is a very strange realm where you do a whole bunch of work and you hope that maybe someone will pay for you, pay, it, pay, pay you for it um, further down the road, seems like so wildly speculative and, and bizarre. It was... Um, uh, I was never intimidated at the at the, the work of writing a novel because I, I figured that that had to be just like writing a whole bunch of dishwasher repair manuals in a row, and um, uh, or basically writing a movie with adjectives. But it was this um, kind of speculative nature of well, what happens to it after that? That that was was obscure. So um, as an as a time management exercise, how long is it going to take me to write that seventy five thousand word novel? And it turns out that if you just dedicate one day a week um, and give yourself one weekend, then you can get a pretty ugly but functional first draft in about six weeks. And like that doesn't seem to be a uh, much of a daunting task. So I wrote my first novel, which was a steampunk adventure novel, and um, I went to Kickstarter to go and say, like, well, what's next? And I, I've had this concept for a... Um, like a Regency steampunk uh, tween girl adventure um, uh, pitch that um, I had originally conceived for uh, animated television, 20-minute broadcast. That was, the, the, the conceit is uh, Mary Shelley, the world's first science fiction author, and Ada Lovelace, the world's first computer programmer, 
uh, as tween girls in a hot air balloon fighting crime in 1820s London um, alongside Percy Shelley as their, as their tutor and Charles Dickens, um, whom uh, Ada actually knew um, as a boy. So the um, so that was kind of the setup, but I went to Kickstarter to go and say, okay, I want to write this thing, and I'm going to need to get an editor, I need a cover, and I asked for four grand um, to pay other people. So, well, I, I did this thing as an experiment, and it exploded, and it got international press, and it raised $92,000, and the phone started ringing, and it was Disney and Sony and Mattel, and everybody wanted a meeting, and I had 30 agents in the inbox, and um, so I was suddenly breathing, breathing this very rarefied air of mm. what happens next with, um, so I ended up committing to do a series, um, and got the agent, and, uh, the book is out with Random House. Um, there's four books in the series that have been released thus far it's called the Wolfencraft Detective Agency. And it's really for nine to 12 year olds, um, skewed towards girls because it is a strong feminist subject to that. Um, particularly in this nod that, um, like, I think in all good children's literature, um, the, the kids are smart, the grown-ups are clueless, and it's really up to the kids' sense of um, either defying boundaries or being oblivious to boundaries. That, you know, oh, this isn't something that I'm, that I'm not supposed to do. This is impossible, therefore I won't try to do it. Uh, and when you are 12 years old, you're not necessarily aware of things like the laws, the laws of physics or social repercussions. So you just get to do stuff. Uh, and I, I really want to keep that spirit of, uh, of adventure and possibility at the table. And so that's been um, optioned for television and deals are ongoing, negotiations are ongoing. Um, as they do, this stuff takes years and years and years. Television is made out of lunch. And, um, and so you have to have lunches. And those lunches have been in you know, my tiny little colonial town uh, in Western Canada. They, they take place either in New York or they're in Los Angeles or they're in London. And it takes, I, I think, an average of about 23 lunches to make a TV series. And so those lunches you know, don't, don't take place over 23 days. So they take place over several years. And I think right now we're about lunch 17, so I'm often at the, um, so that's kind of the main thing, although before then, I mean, I, I have dabbled in, um, in weirdo circles for my whole life, um, and, uh, teen Wicca at a very young age, and I think at a really kind of interesting point for, uh, paganism and new religious movements in North America, uh, in the early 80s, because that was through the satanic panic and, that kind of gave me some really interesting insights. And um, and I ended up sort of following the breadcrumbs home of, of what were these people talking about? And what were they trying to convey in post-war Britain that then went through this second wave feminist lens to become kind of pop witchcraft, put on paperbacks of the late 70s and early 80s. And it, it goes back to kind of 1850s England and then further back to uh, uh, the Golden Dawn and various offshoots. And it's like, well, where did that stuff come from? What, what problem were they trying to solve? And 
by piecing this narrative together, I, I end up to my own bewilderment in a clerical collar as an ordained priest in an independent Catholic tradition uh, of the French Gnostic tradition, which is really one of the stones of the, in the water that created all these ripples that turned into all these other things uh, in the, from the 18th century on. And um, so I got to observe some really, uh, some really interesting stuff along the way and how that's changed and how we've revised this, this history and what's been uh, contracted and compressed and then elastic and expansive. Uh, and how that is at once kind of beautiful and terrifying um, and and wildly misinformed about its own history. <laughs> Absolutely. And and I think that's actually how you and I connected. I had no idea about the the children's author side of you for I don't I don't know how many years we've sort of been in one another's circles at this point, but um, it was actually quite a while before I realized, oh hey. <laughs> He's also a, a children's author of some renown um, because we we came into contact with one another through, uh, you know, your discussions and online presence of regarding, you know, paganism and spiritual practice and discussions of social issues and things like that. Um, and I, I really find it such an interesting place to see a, a career like yours um, where you've got these two sides that uh, at at first blush seem to be so um, far apart from one another that you as the you know the children's author with Disney calling uh, also has this um, you know really outspoken really uh, passionate social justice, uh, spiritual aspect to yourself. Uh, do you ever find that to be a difficult line to walk? I mean, you know, you, you do have an audience of nine to 12 year old girls. And, um, you know, I know that here in America, it takes one wrong tweet, one wrong, you know, something for somebody's entire career to end. I'm, I'm, of course, thinking of, of the recent tweets of J.K. Rowling, another children's author of possibly slightly larger renown, who, uh, yeah, who, you know, who has exposed herself once and for all as a, a, as a, a very proud transphobic individual. Um, and you, you know, you put out a, a message that same day, I think, um, saying, you know, trans lives matter. And I felt this was important to, to say as a children's book author. So do you ever find that sort of line between who you are as a person and who you are as this public figure to be a difficult one to walk? Uh, not at all. Um, I, you know, I, I, I probably should be. I, I think I can really be that more of cluelessness than anything else. But, you know, I, I, I have an offering. Um, of the, the kind of stories that I want to tell and the kind of stories that uh, that 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 me and so obviously there's a there's a snag there's something that uh, that as a creator and, and you know there'll be a theme and suddenly the words are there and you you see that little loose thread and you just kind of pull on it and you pull on it and you you see where it goes um, so it really is driven by that curiosity and my curiosity uh, for for those kinds of experiences don't change whether I'm talking about, you know, um, obscure, uh, 
breakaway Masonic lodges in the 1700s or, um, you know, the sort of mad balloonists of the of the early 1800s who were running around and um, uh, collecting rare books and then doing alchemy experiments in, in, at their summer house. Um, there's, so there's this kind of continuity of curiosity that I'm very interested in the history of ideas and the history of science uh, and how that affects society, how society sees itself. And, you know, obviously the, the, sort of the first big step that a society can take in terms of, of being, even showing up for itself, is including everyone. And, and if sort of the first step is, okay, well, we have half the population, roughly, um, and we, we ignore them, and then we suddenly include them. We, we, we have all these voices at the table we had before, and then everything changes. Um, so certainly with Mary Wollstonecraft and Vindication of the Rights of Women, um, and uh, certain uh, uh, feminists of the French Revolutionary period, we had women at the table, people talking about uh, women in professions and uh, women having the right to vote. Again, this was really very much of a, a class thing, but still we had doubled the number of, of, uh, of voices at the table. And then it's like, well, what? No, we're starting to hear stories that we've never heard before. Um, and then it behooves society to go in and say, well, what other, what stories are we missing? Oh, wait a minute, there's all these there's these people of color here who we've kind of been ignoring. Let's bring them in. And it's like, oh, no, we've got queer people and queer people of color and queer people of color who experience disability. And I mean, and, and then just, you know, hey, what about poor people? It's like, so it, all these things kind of come as a shock that, wait a minute, there's more stories. And, um, you know, we're going to need another seat at the table. We're going to need to build a longer table and we're going to need to get another microphone. Um, I, I think it's always great because it's just one of those sort of story threads of, well, where does this go? And uh, there's, I, I guess the only thing that I've become aware of um, in my very limited privileged bubble of, of obliviousness is that the developing a sense of, of, of awareness of um, why well, I really love this story, but it's not my story to tell. But I'm I'm going to actively solicit for these stories. Um, I'm going to support these stories when I find them, um, and uh, yeah, and then I want more. So you said that um, there was. Um, uh... You, you know, you've used the word feminist a lot, that there is a strong feminist uh, note in your work, that one of the impetuses that you had for creating the story that you did and using the characters that you did, taking some of the liberties that you did with those historical figures was the strong feminist uh, tones of um, their stories and of the stories that you wanted to tell. What do you think is so important about speaking to a audience of mostly younger people, mostly younger girls, about a, a strong feminist message. On the flip side, um, you did just say that you are very cautious about uh, telling stories that are not yours to tell. Um, you know, we're both cisgender white guys. <laughs> uh, do you ever find it to be a struggle to talk about feminism, to talk about uh, women's rights to talk about um, what it means to to struggle as a woman 
as a guy. <laughs> There's, I'm, I, I don't find it hard because there are, are definite no-go zones. So I, I definitely stay within um, the accessible comfort level and, and their aspects. So, um, you know, I, I grew up um, as, uh, as the, the only boy, uh, the youngest in a household of girls. Uh, um, so I have this, this uh, plethora of older sisters and um, uh, really the inspiration and a lot of the voice for the characters came from um, uh, when my own daughter was of that age, eight, nine, um, a voracious reader and, uh, and and driving kids between soccer practice and dance practice. And just that buzz of that energy. It was very, very accessible for me. And also, um, you know, because I, I ended up uh, getting to talk to literally thousands of kids a, a year at various festivals and um, and, you know, when I talk to them, it's a two-way conversation. So I, I really am curious as to what they, what, what they're worried about, um, what inspires them, what else are they reading. So their voice for me is, is constantly fresh and, and authentic. Um, and uh, so I don't talk about the experience of girlhood. I talk about the bullshit of the machine that they face because I can see that. Um, and on a, to pull the lens back a little bit, obviously, um, feminism is this, this wild idea that women are, are human. Um, you know, I, I, I can wrap my head around that one pretty quick. Um, you know, we can certainly parse it from there. Um, and, uh, for me, um, as a straight guy who grew up always on, on the periphery um, of queer culture and uh, having many friends and family members who are queer, it would be easy for me to write um, an, an objective story with, with a gay character, even, a, even a, a, a central gay character, although I wouldn't be able to speak to their that innate friction and that innate experience. I wouldn't presume to do that, but I have no problem putting either a female character or a queer character center stage. Whereas I wouldn't do that to say an indigenous character or an Asian character because I'm not fluent. I don't have that vocabulary and I haven't, um, you know, I, I, I need to kind of eat with people and cry with people before I can get a sense of, um, of, of where those pressure points are. And so I, I, I get a, a degree of, of um, not fluency, but literacy. There's a big difference between those two things. So I stay where, uh, when writing about those characters, I stay in a place where I am literate, but I don't assume fluency. So you just have to architect a story that doesn't require it. I appreciate that you said that, you know, you have no problem centering a character and writing for a character that you, I mean, you, you know, you don't personally uh, have any experience being, you know, <laughs> I'm a writer as well. And I, I, you know, certainly have never been a woman, uh, know lots of women, never been a woman, can write a woman. 
Um, but I like that you said that there are these areas of no-go zones. And I think the reason that you're so successful at what you do is because you adhere to those no-go zones. <laughs> there are places that you you know that you cannot write because there are just certain things that you cannot write without lived experience. Um, or at least serious, serious, serious amounts of research into that and the blessing of the people that you're writing about. Um I remember, you know, around this time last year, I wrote a review for a, a book um, in in the young adult genre uh, where these two, I guess, well-meaning ladies had written a queer romance. And I was just aghast at all of the negative stereotypes and the uh, the ways at which they had depicted these, um, these young people. And I was like, I, I don't know that any of either of these women have actually met a queer person. <laughs> I don't know that they've actually met them. They seem to have read a lot of other young adult books about queer characters and picked out the tropes that they enjoyed, and then they wrote their own book. Um, I don't know that they've ever actually met them. Uh, and so I, I appreciate that you understand that you, you know, a good author doesn't take the hubris of writing an inauthentic experience, writing an unlived experience, and that even if you have, you know, enough people around you and have enough uh, uh, research bona fides, you still have areas that you just cannot write. Yeah, absolutely. Because my my interest is, um, is storytelling, not, not colonization. Mm -hmm. It's not to go over and and take up a space that isn't mine it's to find the commonality and what makes a good story is its universality i mean sometimes if you're if you've got a um someone with a very specific uh demographic and a very specific experience who wants to intimately share that experience fictional or not with others that are um, kind of initiated into that space then that's fantastic um but that is a that's a that is a rare and precious thing. What we encounter all the time are are just stories, and why stories are are elastic um, uh, to uh, uh, and, and part of the reason of, of somebody like uh, J.K. Rowling's success is that Harry's experience of you know, kind of being the neglected kid under the stairs is is something that we can all relate to. Mm -hmm. even in the cupboard under the stairs um you know we've never uh we most of us didn't get the letter from hogwarts um but we have that sense of of uh a parallel in our own lives of that excitement and sense of opportunity and suddenly everything can change and that, that we can be in a wider world and you certainly get that um on that that, that cusp of adolescence if you get there's um uh, if there's a reason why um, all these things happen when you're 11, because you know I think 11 is when you have a kind of a foot in both worlds. You know you're you're definitely in childhood, but you see that these clouds on the horizon that are uh, both menacing and yet compelling. Um, and just so that that dramatic tension of that of that, that time that we, we I mean all drama needs conflict. Here's the time we can all relate to that is that is both internally conflicted and it, and it means external change you're you're going to go to your daily routine is going to change when you go from one school to another um your group of friends will change your influences will change but also your own inferiority makes this leap 
forward, and but you're, there's still the, the the treasure and the clinging to childhood, and of of either safety or for a lot of kids, get me the hell out of this space. Um, and so all of those conflicts are are universally accessible. So um, if I'm writing about somebody that isn't me, which is well, let's face it, everybody that isn't me, I try to to say okay, what what are the universal aspects. What do you think is the responsibility of authors, especially authors for children, of writing diversity, of writing representation into their stories? Because I I think that the default of a lot of writers is to sort of write what they know. And if you're, you know, the typical white person, you grew up in a suburb and your neighbors were white and you went to a school where everybody was mostly white. And so it feels fairly natural to write what you know and to let you know, mostly straight white people be the default. And it's not that those people don't have struggles and it's not that those people don't have conflicts of their own, but when everything is so white and so straight and so cisgendered, the world doesn't really reflect reality. Um, so what do you think the responsibility is for people to to go out of their way to write representation in there? Or does it make for inauthentic storytelling if somebody is reaching outside of their scope? Obviously, it depends. Um, I'm writing um, a, about a very narrow channel with the with the Wollstonecraft series. Um, this is a snapshot in time in the late 1820s um, around women who actually existed. So I'm writing about them and their family members and their social circles and the artistic and literary circles and the intellectual circles that shaped them. Um, and uh, while... Uh, Mary Shelley was definitely not straight. Um, that's not something even that she was talking about at the age of 14. Um, and uh, because I'm writing for a middle grade audience, the whole idea of um, orientation or attraction just isn't really coming up for them because they're, they're, they're busy, right? So um, in, in that space, I wouldn't talk about it. Whereas if I was writing about Mary Shelley at 30, I would absolutely include her relationships with women. Um, and uh, it was largely driven by frustration just because she just came to a point where uh, after her, kind of her heart had been broken at death her husband, after having to put up with such an insufferable misogynist of, of Lord Byron, she was just like, I am surrounded by idiots. I just, I can't handle men anymore. Something that a, a lot of women that I know um, <laughs> come to that point, um, and uh, you know, like zero judgments. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I actually am a straight white man, and I'm bored of us already. So <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't blame you out, out there. So, um, but in the Wollstonecraft series, it is. It, I did take some um, some some pushback fairly early on. It's like, why are you writing about? Um, conventionally pretty thin white girls that are kind of middle, upper middle class or, or upper class. It's like, well, because there was this moment in history that is really compelling and that these two real girls did change the world as young girls. Mary Shelley wrote, invented a new genre of literature as a teenager without asking for On a dare. <laughs> yeah, like, well, and, and as a, kind of as a way to... Um, avoid another three-way with Byron and Shelley. 
Um, and so, you know, she, she cranked out a, a, a new genre and, um, Ada Lovelace was the first person to look at, at mechanical computing that had been theorized for a while, but to, to go and say, this isn't just about math. I mean, we're going to be able to create art with this. We're going to be able to create music with this. Everything can be code. Everything can then, um, come out of code and this becomes, you know, the big box of crayons for creative individuals and that is um, and, and they're connected because of course uh, Byron's father was Mary's husband's uh, best friend and lover and um, uh, so just to have these two young people making this contribution as young women um, and and having this ligature historically is, is just really interesting uh, and when I talk to kids, it's like, okay, if you like Star Wars or uh, Guardians of the Galaxy or you like comics, that's because of Mary. And if you have an Xbox or an iPad, that's because of Ada. And a, the, the message that that falls out of that is, um, it, is a really important social one. That when we talk to girls... Um, of that of that age, nine to twelve, and you say, "Well, what do you want to do? What do you what do you want to be? What contribution do you want to make?" And you get a lot of, "I want to be a doctor. Um, I want to be a research scientist. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a pilot." And then when you ask them the same question when they are fourteen or fifteen, it's like they become co-pilots. You know, mm-hmm. um, I don't want to be the the neurosurgeon, but you know, nursing is kind of interesting um, and. Like, these are all noble professions without which the, the universe would come to a, a grinding halt. But the, the sense of ambition um, is, is very well established and passionate in these kids. I mean, literally, it is causing um, like physical pain that they are not a neurosurgeon, <laughs> you know, an astronaut um, at 10. And by 14, it's kind of like they just they, they, they turn the, the temperature down. A lot, and it doesn't happen with boys generally, societally in North America or in the English-speaking world. Um, boys are strong first to maintain that kind of shoot for the moon, um, and, uh, and and girls are not. So I wanted to help address that by uh, by showing real-world models where. Uh, Young women had changed the world with their intellect and their imagination and their curiosity. And, and it's sustainable that if you really want to be an astronaut at 10, there's no reason why you can't be 20 and going to university and learning how to be an astronaut. Um, and, uh, and, and this is all for purely selfish reasons that um, our planet is on fire and um, quite literally. We need all hands on deck. We need um, uh, all voices in all uh, in, in all aspects of society to come up with a solution to find a way forward. And that is through that isn't just STEM. It's not just science, tech, engineering, and math, which gets um, a lot of attention, deservedly so. But it's also in the art. It's also in imagination. So that's why I have these two characters with very different ways of problem solving that um, uh, Ada is very linear and rational and logical. She likes math. She likes doing math worksheets. 
because it makes the work kind of tidy. She likes puzzles and solving that comforts her own anxiety. Whereas Mary is prone to these big leaps of intuition, of reading people, of, uh, of imagination. And she does tend to kind of get, get carried away because she gets overblown with it. But it becomes just as valuable to create and to intuit and to engage in artistic practice as it is to do the research and crunch the numbers and come up with logical solutions. And these two things work together. Um, and so I, you know, I wanted to really showcase these archetypes and say, this is, these aren't just a, um, this isn't a fantasy setting. These, these girls really existed and we are, are wandering through a world of their invention. Um, none of which, of course, would have been possible without the contribution of Mary's mother, Wollstonecraft, who said, hey, wouldn't it be cool if um, we educated girls? You know, <laughs> anyway, I, I get, I get um, a, a gym with 300 kids in it. Thank you, Roger. I love that you brought me coffee so I can, can survive. The, um, I, I'm uh, waiting on mine. I, I have lemon water here. <laughs> The, uh, I'll try to put it through the a port in the, in the laptop. But the, um, uh, the, the, the so I, I'm in a gym full of 300 kids, and I say, okay, Mary Shelley, her mom had this idea, and it's what if crazy idea? We take boys and girls, and we teach them how to do stuff, and then we let them do stuff with the things that they learn, and we think that this is possible. This is a good idea. And every kid puts their hand up. And I said, okay, well, there was a word for this idea. And it's called feminism. And you're all feminists now. Because you kind of grok this, this idea that boys and girls can learn stuff. And do stuff with the things that they learn. Um, and that was kind of zero wave Mary Wollstonecraft feminism. And then teachers bury their face in their hands and stop. <laughs> he said a political <laughs> word. <laughs> Get phone calls, right? But um, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm positively geriatric for this, uh, for writing in the genre. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm 53, so I grew up, um, uh, even though in, in, in Canada, very culturally uh, affected by the, the dialogue in, in the United States. I grew up through in, in the uh, through the, the campaign for the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, where Sesame Street was talking about the ERA, um, you know, where Gloria Steinem was a household name. And, and it was actually my dad who, who told me in the early 70s when um, I was in elementary school what feminism was and why he was a feminist and why I had to be one. And... Um, uh, so, so it was never this kind of thing, this this space that I wasn't allowed into. This was just like a, you know, like here's a framework, here's a tool. We have a whole bunch of problems in this world, and here's a toolkit for solving problems, and it's called feminism. And don't deny yourself this toolkit, because the problems aren't going to go away unless you crack that open. I mean, now we call this uh, uh, intersectional feminism, and we you know, we have there, and we're going to call this something else. Mm -hmm. By the time we get to like twelfth wave feminism. Um, you know, it's going to be super interesting and I'll be completely illiterate, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, this is a tool, tool set that, 
that is um, adaptive and flexible and responsive to societal and and technical and environmental pressures. Um, and uh, uh, so it's just it's important to me that kids don't become isolated from this suite of tools for for problem solving. So I, I want to ask, uh, because something that you and I have actually had several discussions about in the past is representation in literature. And we've talked about this a little bit already, but um, I, I want to know more about your sort of views on the onus of specific representation in literature. So, um, you know, when authors are mapping out a book creating an outline, developing a character, something like that. They normally have some kind of character sheet or some notes or something about who this person is. Uh, and sometimes those notes include things like, this person's gay, this person is allergic to peanuts, this person is, you know, this person's trans, this person's uh, got blue hair, and so on and so forth. And some of those things are very, very important pieces of what make up that that character. And some of those are... You know, well, if we ever get to a scene where he's forced to eat a peanut butter sandwich, then that might come into play. Otherwise, I'm never going to really care that this character is allergic to peanuts. Um, not just children's liter but literature, but literature in general, uh, because television, film, it's a little bit easier to sort of squint and see whether or not somebody is black or whether or not somebody is, uh, you know, has alopecia, whether or not somebody has, uh, you know, um, a physical disability, whether or not somebody is gay, though that's, you know, uh, sometimes hard to see if you don't show it. Um, but what do you think the onus is in literature to write representation as a little bit more obvious representation? Anytime that there's an opportunity in story to uh, to make that story more identifiable and more um, the real world. If you've got a character um, who uh, you know they they grew up and their 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 childhood best friend was Korean, um, you're, you're there's going to be one uh, even if it's just a black. There's going to be one kid reading it and it's like. My childhood best friend was three. <laughs> There's a kid who lives next door, um, and you, you can make that connection. Uh, so it really is dependent on the story. I I, I see because um, in the Wollstonecraft series, uh, Ada is quite intentionally is on the spectrum, um, and from uh, the, the writings that she had. Um, or so writings about her, particularly from her mother, who was rather a, a dreadful parent, but otherwise a, a compelling, um, quite a compelling character in her own right. I specifically kept her out, or you know, kind of off stage in the series, um, because it does just create more pressure on the character uh, and give her a degree of freedom. But um, the uh, when her mother is writing about Ada at that age, it's it's obvious because of her socialization that she um, is is somewhere on the autistic spectrum, and it uh, and a lot of her mannerisms and her triggers and her responses and even how Mary um, deals with her anxiety and creates tools to help alleviate Ada's anxiety. Those come from real world examples that are in my own family. 
away from my love. And um, so it's really easy for me to uh, do that presentation because because it was real. I'm convinced that Ada was, in fact, on the spectrum, which um, certainly contributed to her out-of-the-box thinking and to her, her genius when exposed to this technology and being able to see it in a way that nobody else could see. But it also explains for her borderline agoraphobia um, that she had uh, as, as a child. But she ends up learning to use her her autism because people didn't make sense to her. People she couldn't she couldn't do the the, the social thing until she went through the mathematics and the um, and really kind of birthed the, the science of computing. Um, because then she started to think in terms of systems. And it's like, well, people have to be systems too. And if it's a system, it can be hacked. So she ended up developing in her in her 20s um, this, this very calculated persona of, oh, okay, this is how I work with neurotypical people. This is how I get what I want. This is how I stop them from freaking out. This is how I. This is how I'm going to operate this machine. She learned societal interaction almost as though it were a, a mathematical formula. I input this. This is the result I get. Which is exactly what she did. So her maturity was taking control of programming her own stimulus and response system. And um, uh, so you know, so so her. Her, her difference is um, is very central to the character, to the plot. The, the books don't happen without her ability and the, the point in her life where it becomes a disability or the point where it becomes um, this kind of routinely, um, it's just comedic in the fact that she sees, here's Lord such and such who expects all of this deference, who expects... Um, oh, because you now you know who I am, you're going to treat me in a very specific way, because this is the way that I'm accustomed to. And um, Ada's uh, autistic brain does not see that this person is really any different from a chimney sweep and doesn't know why she should possibly bother with any additional formality. It's like, you're just a guy, you have some information, just tell me the thing. Um, and uh, and it's real, and it's and it's and it's funny, and it also it does that that kind of um, uh, punching up to the, the class system at the time. Um, and kids get that. Kids even they haven't encountered that before. You know, they're like, here's a very important person, um, and here's an 11 year old who simply doesn't give a crap that they think that they're an important person because it is on a case. She wants a bit of information. She's trying to find a book in the library, and you're standing in her way. Um, you know, it, it is, it is authentically funny. Uh, I do have a new series uh, coming out from Outland that I pitched years ago, um, uh, about teenage warrior women through the ages. And so, um, I, yeah, I wrote it as historical fiction and nobody's buying historical fiction. Historical fiction sells like six, six Kindle copies. And so people are even signing historical fiction. So as a poet, <laughs> you are singing the song of my people, sir. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, uh, yes, it's it, it's not a it's not a high volume genre, but the um, uh, but people are buying 
uh, historical fantasy. So by really not changing any of the content, um, I meant I repackaged the series as historical fantasy and sold like that. Uh, so you know, there are all these stories of, of princesses. I would just sort of back up for a, a quick second. The reason why I write a, when I, I'm fascinated by history and the reason why I write about women in history is simply because um, all the, the all the good men in history stories have been to death. Um, and so, but, you know, there are still all these fantastic characters and they just happen to be women that we've been ignoring for hundreds of years. So I, I dust off their stories and they just happen to be there. So it is entirely mercenary on my part. Um, so uh, I wrote a, a, a Viking book about uh, Gertha from the uh, from the, the Chronicles of Saxo, who at 17 was the admiral of the largest fleet that Europe would see until the Spanish Armada. Um, and you know she was, was her, her village was raised and she was enslaved. Um, and uh, she uh, managed to uh, get herself out of that situation. Um, slavery or, or thrall in um, uh, in Northern Europe is a very different. So I mean, you know, slavery has always been around. Certainly, the Roman Empire ran on slaves. The way our uh, our empire runs on oil, but um, uh, the the economics and the social status of, of slaves were very very different between say like Viking culture and. You know, I'm not going to compare that for a second. To something like the the scope of the uh, of the African slave trade, but um, she was in thrall and got herself out of that situation and um, became an, an amazing tactician. That hundred years after her death, um, people were convinced that she had to have some kind of supernatural uh, uh, aid because how else could a sixteen year old know how to drive seventy warships with thousands of of uh, troops? Into battle and and invent flanking maneuvers and baffle the crap out of uh, their opposition and and, and uh, not one but two civil wars um, and uh, and so we have this story so I, I, I into her story um, and I I did want to talk about the the gender roles in Viking society but there's um, uh, and just how kind of how normal it was. Uh, certainly, women went in, into battle. Um, the whole idea of a household was very important. So, a household held the money, and women ran the household, which meant women ran the money. They put their husbands on allowances. Um, uh, if a man wanted to get, it depends on where you are and when you are, of course, but if a man wanted to divorce his wife, he basically had to get a lawyer. If a woman wanted to divorce her husband, she simply told everybody that this had happened already. Um, and so there's a strong um, egalitarian thread in, in Viking culture, but also in um, Viking mythology, uh, uh, gender is is super flexible. Um, you know, Loki is, is is on the run, hiding from the other gods, and he disguises himself as a mare. So when a god turns himself into a stallion and impregnates Loki, and Loki gives birth to other horses. Um, uh, one of them is just sleeping there. Uh, Odin's uh, eight tiny reindeer. I mean, eight legged horse. <laughs> and uh, so there's that, that sense of, of flexibility and, and or leg or, or fate 
uh, is woven through. And uh, so what the, my central character, Lada, um, has two sisters and goes on this journey. And um, one of her sisters uh, comes to her and says, I'm talking up to the, the, kind of the crazy old lady up on the hill. And she says, actually, I have a man's destiny. And then I'm going to take a, take a wife and, and die in battle. And they're like, oh, okay. Well, that happens to us all the time. So I guess that happens to you as well. And it's like, the so Rhoda doesn't change their name. Rhoda is just, just, is, is just, is still Rhoda. Mm-hmm. Uh, but perceived, even not um, as, yeah, I was careful for, because at no point, um, just when in, in the writing, at no point did Rhoda go and say, so I'm a dude now. <laughs> um, it's Rhoda is just has this kind of conversation where um, they're as a, as, as a very young team that I've been given this piece of information and I'm just kind of considering it. So after that, Rhoda's sisters are careful not to put them in any kind of box. Mm-hmm. And that's really kind of the extent of it. It's just respected that this is a process. And if it comes out that this is actually, that this is when it moves from process to identity, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with that in like four seconds. Like, just bring us, just keep us in the loop. Oh, okay. You know, by the way, you know, high five, we love you. Um, uh, but it's just, uh, so Rhoda's uh, transness is just, at that early conversational stage, right? We're just where there's just some kind of some story tension, and just to, just to flesh out Rhoda's family life. I mean, there's sort of flesh out a lot of family life because you know there are there are other there are other background characters, and so I have this um, uh, this. And I'm, I, I certainly wouldn't want to go into the detail of um, Rhoda's transness and um, to to centralize that. And to understand the interiority of that, because I'm not capable of that. That's not a story that I could tell. But I can say, here's a our central character, um, and she has a family member who um, effectively comes out as trans, or at least is, is having a gender conversation, and that's just instantly accepted with love and in a cultural context of, yeah, shit happens, um, and that um, you know, like. Keep us up to date, and um, uh, okay, now let's go kill some bad And it, you know, it really is that um, simple, and, and I think a, an accurate portrayal of Viking society in that time. Uh, and and it's about Julie Lamotin, who is this ma- magnificent uh, cross-dressing pansexual. Um, uh, she's kind of a sociopath, actually, because she uh, she's a swordswoman, and she stabs many, many people um, often while uh, while seriously intoxicated. But she has many lovers, and um, uh, and so for me to write that was 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 pretty easy, even though I mean I originally wrote it as her diary. So I had that degree of remove of what, what she articulates, and it didn't work as a diary. So it ended up being sort of this first-person narrative, and it's just um, you know what really drives her is uh, is that she's just hungry all the time. She's just hungry, and she she was a real person. She grew up in in Versailles that was being built. 
she was a court girl. Her her job, as she uh, uh, describes it, is to be the shiniest apple on the cart, and hopefully to get married off to some some nobleman somewhere, which does happen. But that doesn't stop her from being the official mistress of some of Camp So and So, which doesn't actually preclude her from um, sleeping with whoever she wants to sleep with. Um, she does have a temper and an alcohol problem, and she is regrettably very, very good at, at, uh, at doing. Um, and, uh, and again, this, this is a real person. So I'm dealing with like court records of the time to paint a picture of, of who this woman was and who her lovers were. Um, and so it was easy for me to do um, representation there because it was all fact-based. Uh, so I I want to ask real quick because I've taken up quite a lot of your time so I don't <laughs> I don't want to like take up your whole Saturday but I do want to ask because you said that you you didn't really write uh, or at least start writing books until 2012 I think is what you said earlier um, and you know you've already said that you're 53 so 2012 uh, it, you 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 were not a <laughs> you. You were not a teenager at the time. Um, and I think that a lot of people, I think right now, because this show will come out, uh, you know, January 2020. Um, and a lot of people are making resolutions and looking back at uh, time and trying to find a new hobby, trying to revive a hobby, things like that. So there's a lot of people out there that have a creative uh, desire, a creative impetus. Um, but we also live in 2020. We live in the age of social media. We live in the age of millionaire 12-year-old content creators who make a few TikToks, and I have had to learn what a TikTok is. <laughs> and they go viral, and they are millionaires, and they have world tours, and nobody over the age of 15 has ever heard of them. Um, and I, I th But I think that it has led to a culture, uh, you know, a reality TV culture, a social media culture, um, an influencer culture of if you haven't made it by 20, if you definitely haven't made it by 25, you are never, ever, 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 ever going to make it. And you are going to die as some secretary. Your name is eventually going to become Peg because everybody's name eventually becomes Peg at a certain point in time. Your hair is going to look like this. You are going to wear cardigans and this is where you are going to be for the rest of your life and all of eternity. Um, and I like the idea of talking to somebody who at least reached their renown. I don't want to to put on you that you've reached your success at uh, a particular age, because I'm sure that there have been different points in life where you felt successful. Um, but that, that, you know, a great achievement for yourself did happen over the age of 30. Uh, because I think that a lot of people get to that age um, and think, well, crap, I haven't done anything. Time is up. Time is over. I can't, I, I, I will never make it. So I, I want to talk a little bit and this last little part of the uh, the the show about finding success at a, a, after your teenage years, <laughs> um, and 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 keeping that desire, keeping that motivation. I I was um, you know first of all I'd like to point out that I've I there's photographic proof that you can totally rock a cardigan, by the way. So. Um, uh, there'll be no, 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 no cardigan hate on this, 
on, on this particular episode. <laughs> uh, yeah, what's wrong with the curse? But the um, I, I certainly know what you mean in terms of that that uh, that pressure. But what we have to to realize is we're looking at a subset of a subset. So um, uh, certainly uh, social media and uh, the visual presentation of social media um, has done what other forms of um, corporate interests have done, which is to completely monetize and fetishize you. Mm. So while we are seeing um, 16 year olds with their own makeup brands and multi-million dollar deals, um, first off, yay them. They worked really hard to do that. And I appreciate a really good makeup uh, channel as much as the next person. Um, and, um, but, uh, you know, there are also, um, 600 other, uh, pegs who are also doing their makeup channel, um, and they're adjacent. So we're, we're seeing the clicks and subscribers and the endorsements and the monetization of youth. And that is not necessarily in the, um, that is not out of consideration for the uh, inherent value of young people and their perspective. That is about exploitation. Some people are, are taking advantage of this exploitation machine. And if it's there, then hell, take advantage of it. But um, uh, it, is a, it, is a, it is a product. It is a construct. It is something that makes Google billions of dollars. Um, and you'll... You know, you do look like you are the beneficiary of that wealth and fame and success, um, but you are getting uh, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the revenues, and you are being exploited um, to a much greater degree than you are benefiting. Um, and so, yeah, we're going to focus on on the kids and the sense that, uh, and then uh, young adults in their late teens, early twenties, um, but. If you if you poke around, there are octogenarians that are um, uh, that are doing stuff that are creating things. Um, so just because you're not getting the subscribers, the clicks, or the views, doesn't mean that you that your work doesn't have value. Um, that you 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 don't have intrinsic value, um, but from because you're a person um, and. It is easy to get to get caught up in that. Uh, you know, I I'm certainly driven by fear. Um, <laughs> not, it's not a fear of death. It's for me. It's my fear of boring myself. Mm. So, uh, and a lot of creative people have that, right? That gets absolutely terrifying. If you just sort of stopped creating, then you just bore yourself. And um, uh, yeah, it is. It's important um, for any creative individual. To, to, to make that shift. If I have like one bit of advice, it's don't think of yourself as a bank teller who wants to be a playwright. Think of yourself as a playwright mm -hmm. working as a bank teller while you finish your next play. And if you can get your head around that equation, that works when you're 22 and lamenting your misbank youth. And it works when you're 82. Um, so uh, just you know, centralize that work and follow the art and see where it leads. Uh, uh, I mean, for me, 
as I said, you know, I've always been a writer. Um, I've always been very mercenary. Um, you know, I, I, I got good because I sold a million lines of copy before I sold my first book. Um, I wrote ads. I ghost wrote things. I, uh, I wrote movie scripts and I taught other people how to do that. Um, and so, but um, again, I can't really stress the uh, importance of of poetry as a foundation um, because yeah, there it is. Um, I, because it's about creating a connection with the reader and evoking some kind of response, and it is like casting a spell. You are trying to change a person's brain and try to change their reality through this magnificent um, hypnotic structure of shapes on a page that that creates a, a squelching in the brain um, that can can quicken the pulse and uh, make people feel things. So whatever your practice is, just 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 practice at it. Um, my uh, my first novel, um, Mechanicals, was uh, um, I started out as a as a screenplay, and I realized that it was completely unfilmable. And uh, I thought, uh, okay, well, why, um, you know, wh- why not make this a novel? Like, why not just just sort of see how long it's going to take? And it was an experiment. Um, and uh, I did the Amazon thing because that what everybody was doing in 2011. Um, and I wanted to see how long would it take me to to, to move about 1,500 books. Mm-hmm. And um, without buying ads, but just having this out there and uh, and just talking about it. Uh, and it took about nine months, and then I did the math, and was like, okay, then this is how this is how you start that. <laughs> so. Um, uh, uh, it was then okay. I could pivot to doing things like uh, Kickstarter was brand new, um, and there hadn't been uh, anything like I was bringing to the table before. It certainly changed a lot since then. Kickstarter is much more um, about just about pre-orders, and it's more more, it's more like shopping. Whereas um, back in 2012, when I did the campaign. Uh, it was much more like voting with a with a ten dollar pledge to live in a world where this kind of content is available. Mm-hmm. Right? It's more like this is the kind of stuff that I want to see, um, and your kind of reward for for doing that is oh, and here's a thing, um, as opposed to adds to cart that it's become, and you know, that's perfectly viable. Um, there are lots of things that that, that work that way, but. Um, uh, I don't think that, that that success that I had is replicable now because the environment has changed. Um, but uh, I mean, you know, there's there are all these lists of you know what was Oprah doing at 30, and you know what were, uh, and and so it's 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 uh, I'll, I'll, I know I'll be writing uh, until shortly after death. Uh, shortly after. Yeah, after. It takes a while, a while for all of those uh, all those brain cells to die, and I'll, I know I'll be looking for just the right word. Well, you know, while my my core temperature is plummeting, <laughs> while the, the needle in the liver thermometer is is plunging, and uh, I'll still have a few synapses that are trying to find a good metaphor, um, and uh, just 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 follow your art. So um, realize that 
that the, the, the youth success is really skewed. It's not an accurate portrayal um, of, of, of the marketplace and of what things look like. Um, we're just seeing the, the successes of people who are young and cute and photogenic um, because it makes a better story um, literally for clicks. So the, the success isn't their success, it's the story of their success, and that is um, it's, it's exploitation, it's manipulation, um, it is deliberately exclusive. Um, you don't see a lot of fat people in those spaces, you don't see a lot of people of color. Certainly you do see um, in, increasingly more, in more voices. Um, you, the, you know, the barrier to entry is very low, but it still exists. Um, you know, there are not a lot of uh, YouTubers in Ghana with a million subscribers. So, you know, when we get it's like, wow, anybody can be this person, you know, anybody can can um, can make that one video, and suddenly it's got a hundred million hits, and you know, the money's pouring in, endorsements are pouring in. Those people all are, are fitting into a preconceived box, mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, uh, I don't think that uh, you know, Justin Bieber was actually one of the first YouTube stars. We, we sort of forget about that. Mm -hmm. um, it was discovered via YouTube. I don't think that that would be... Um, uh, it's because he already fit into that, that preconceived idea of what a famous kid should look like. Right. Um, and uh, if, if he was uh, an older, larger woman, a woman of color in a wheelchair, even with the same voice, when you've got that, you know, with, with well, the... and you see, you see different minority communities talking about this a lot. You know, you you can be black and famous, but it's a very specific kind of black. Um, you know, you can be queer and famous, but it's a very specific definition of of queer. I mean, a, for a gay person to be famous, they're usually white. They're usually very fit. They usually have very straight teeth. <laughs> you know that they, they are not very effeminate. Yeah, they're 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 this. Uh, I'm I'm this straight dude bro Abercrombie model that just so happens to want to have sex with your brother rather than you. Um, you know, women still want to have sex with them. Uh, and and the the good thing about the evolution of media is that we do have folks like you know Jonathan uh, Jonathan Van Ness out there. We do have folks like um, you know uh, uh, all sorts of folks out there now that that are are beating back gender norms and uh, racial norms and colorism norms and things like that. And and I, I like that people are starting to find success at different ages, in different sizes, in different styles, and in different venues. I mean, um, and I, I think that that is a, a something beautiful and something to be celebrated. And I, I like the idea that um, this this moment in time, if anything, this last decade uh, has, uh, you know, made us all believe, uh, especially those of us in, in my generation, because we all got degrees and the day we all graduated college, the economy tanked and 
you know, so many of us were told that our degrees were officially worthless. So, you know, we we thought we had done the right thing. We went to college, we we played by all the rules, and then we still couldn't find success. We still couldn't make a living. And I think so much of the the bitterness and the internalized um, frustration with seeing some of these Gen Z folks get so big so quickly so early is because you know, some of those opportunities were taken away from us in the last decade. And there's there is a little bit of bitterness and a little bit of resentment. And there's this idea that, well, we didn't make it, so we're never going to make it. And I like hearing stories like yours, hearing stories like others, where just because you don't fit the mold of a particular kind of big shot in a specific field doesn't mean you can't do that. I love what you said about you're a playwright that's a bartender. You're a playwright, you know, I'm a poet that works in the finance uh, finance world. I'm a an artist that, uh, you know, sells insurance, <laughs> things like that. Uh, you know, when I when people ask me what I do, I, you know, I talk about my art, I talk about my writing, I very rarely talk about my day job one, because I find it very boring. <laughs> and it is the least interesting part about me. Um, and uh, it, it's, 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 it's good to switch that mindset. And I think that that is fantastic advice. What you talked about the, um, the, the resentment of you know, famous Gen Z kids, like, that's completely understandable. Um, for, for me, as, as, uh, as uh, in the, the, the crosshairs of Gen X demographically, if for us, we came out of, of, uh, of high school um, in, uh, in, in, the, in the mid-80s where there was this, this prolonged recession um, that lasted about six years, all the while with the boomers uh, declaring that they would never, ever retire. And so we were going, you know, we also had the upside of the fact that, you know, there were, there were missiles pointed at our house and we we're all going to die in, in, in a nuclear war. And so, you know, there was that. Why does this oh. sound familiar? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, we're seeing this, this thing again. So I think there's a kind of a natural allyship to, um, as, as millennials uh, are uh, you're kind of hovering around their 30s and for Gen X, it's like, yeah, like been there. It's still caught in a box by that a demographic box. They're not enough of us to matter. Uh, still uh, stuck by uh, environmental forces that you know, that we saw coming and we're marching against and yelling yelling against the nineties um, and you know and and it didn't seem to matter. Um, so you know, like I, I get it, I really do. Um, but we just need to be you know, I just would caution people who who kind of get that despair from seeing um, younger people who fit a mold to who suddenly get that success. Like don't. Um, don't measure yourself by their experience because their experience is manufactured by forces over which they have no control, overwhelmingly. Um, as you said, it's the, it's the, the Abercrombie models. Uh, they're, they're blessed by genetics, and um, YouTube decided to make them. Um, yeah, they were putting in work, but other people put in just as much work and not being them because didn't fit that that kind of pre-approved mold um so if you don't fit that mold don't worry about it just centralize the art follow the art find your tribe find mm. your, the, the people who get you 
give them everything and um, and celebrate their successes and retweet their book launches, <laughs> go and show up to their gigs and um, and buy their albums and stream their music on mute while you go to bed and you know, like just yeah, surround yourself by the weirdos who create who get you um, and if you do everything that you can for them um, it uh, they'll do everything that they can for you and uh, and you'll make it well i think that is a wonderful place to end on uh jordan if people want to find more about you about your work where can people find you on the great world wide web jordanstratford.com the easiest person in the world to stop. <laughs> well, uh, folks, anything more about uh, Jordan's going to be in the show notes. Jordan Stratford, thank you so much for being my guest today. I, I think it has been a marvelous discussion. I hope you'll come back because uh, there's a whole like a list of questions that we didn't even touch. We didn't even touch on the fact that you wore a collar or Gnosticism or pagan spiritual growth or religious study or anything like that. So there's a whole part two that we've definitely got to do here. <laughs> Absolutely, because there's a there's a really interesting uh, whole pot of tea that uh, that that needs to be a, a wash on the floorboards of pretty much everything that happened between between 1979 and 1989. Um, that you know, really kind of needs to be pushed out in an airlock and then everything will be better once that happens. <laughs> well, good, good, good. You'll you'll come back. We'll spill tea. I'll have coffee, you'll have tea, Um, (laughs) and we'll get it all out there. Well, Rioters, thank you so much for sticking around uh, for this episode of Inciting a Riot, the podcast, Inciting a Wallstone Craft Riot. I hope that you enjoyed it. Please let me know what you uh, thought about this episode. If you have any follow-up questions for Jordan um, that you'd like to uh, to send to us to, uh, to discuss in a follow-up episode, you can email the show, firelight at incitingariot.com. That's F-I-R-E-L-Y-T-E at inciting ariot.com. You can find the show notes as well as blog posts uh, on the website at incitingariot.com. I'm on Twitter at incitingariot. I'm on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash podcast. or you can find me, Firelight, uh, talking about whatever's going on in my day, (laughs) whatever news story is uh, currently inciting my own personal riot, um, and lots of other uh, little social media tidbits here or there. Uh, once again, I do want to say if you'd like to, uh, if you like the show, if you'd like to support the show, there are a couple of different ways uh, to do that. Um, the first is free. Uh, you can go to iTunes, Google Play, wherever you downloaded this show and leave a, uh, a rating please rate it five stars. I would really like that. It's a good way to go into the new year. Um, Likes, rates, uh, comments all help bump this show up and help uh, it to show up in the recommendations for other people. So if you like this show, if you've been lurking, if you've enjoyed this show, um, please, please, please consider going and uh, uh, giving a comment on iTunes, Google Play, wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. One recent comment was from uh, Just One Jackie saying, This podcast has opened my mind to so many ideas and people. It has helped me to grow as a pagan and branch out to see things from different perspectives. I love the guests that Firelight chooses and the topics of conversation that he chooses. Very easy to listen to and never disappoints. 
Thank you, Firelight, for all the hard work that you put into it for us. Oh, well, thank you so much, Jackie. That is such a sweet comment. Uh, again, if you want to let other people know what you think of the show, um, iTunes, Google Play, wherever you download the show, a comment there really helps. Uh, and it helps me to know um, what you guys are liking. Uh, or another way that you can show your support uh, is by giving as little as a dollar per episode, a dollar per creation on Patreon. Um, it helps to support this show. It helps to make sure that it can continue to grow um, and fit the needs of the changing internet <laughs> and the way that people consume media. Uh, so you can give as little as a dollar an episode at patreon.com slash inciting projects. That's going to be it for me. Happy New Year, Rioters. Happy 2020. I hope that you guys are holding to those resolutions um, or not holding to any resolutions if that's your thing. <laughs> uh, I will talk to you soon. I will see you later. But as always, I will leave you with love and light, firelight. <laughs>